Hey, Mockingcasters, RJ here. Before we start the episode, I just wanted to share a few numbers with you. The first number is 5,000. That's how many subscribers the podcast has now. That's an amazing number. That puts us solidly in the top 10% of all podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and for telling your friends. The next number is 50 cents. If every one of our listeners gave 50 cents a month, that would more than fully cover all of the podcast-related costs. Now, unfortunately, you can't actually give 50 cents a month. PayPal won't let us do it. But you can give $10 a month. And if every one of our 5,000 listeners gave $10 a month, two things would happen. Number one, you would all get the Mockingbird Quarterly, this amazing, beautiful magazine that we put out. And I think you would really love it. Next, if every one of you gave $10 a month, it would more than fully fund the entire ministry, not just this podcast and our other podcasts, but also the blog, the books, the quarterly, the conferences, the 11 full and part-time employees who work so hard each and every day to bring you this message of God's amazing grace. Here's the last number, three. That's how many minutes it'll take you to go to ember.com, click on support at the very top of the page, and give $10 a month. I know because I just did it. And I did it in just about the hardest way you can. I did it on my phone. I didn't use autofill. I actually manually entered all my information, even made a few mistakes. Still only took me three minutes. And so if you would take three minutes right now to go to mbird.com support and give $10 a month, it would mean so much to us. Of course, you may be able and feel led to give more than $10 a month. But whatever you give, it'll really be appreciated. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. And now on to the episode. Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. We're back, uh, having just heard R.J. Heyman's um, wonderful voice of doing his appeal for uh, your hard-earned money, dollars. Money, thank money, you, R.J. Money. Uh, money. <laughs> and thank you for that too. It's a gift that keeps on giving here. That's what I'm here for. Um, no, but we 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 uh, you know we do our uh, sort of appeals to support the ministry twice a year, and we certainly can use everything. Uh, and we're so grateful that people have been so incredibly generous with us. Um, anything anything else you want to add to that, uh, Sarah or RJ? Um, I'm a little weirded out by how popular this podcast is, to be honest with you, because I feel like we kind of just show up and. Uh, hang out and we love each other very much and uh, it's so cool that that many people want to listen to that. I guess it's just like well, very actually, strange. But. I recorded that what like a <clears throat> month ago, six weeks ago and we've actually grown even since then. I mean our our yeah our listenership is is really increasing. We're just I'm I'm honored, blown away. I can't believe that Mockingbird is what now ten and a half no eleven years old, Dave. Twelve. Twelve. Twelve, Twelve, Twelve years old. Oh my gosh, almost a teenager. Mockingbird is almost mm-hmm. a teenager, and it's it's amazing how faithful God has been and how hard um, you've worked, Dave. And I'm just honored to be part of this amazing thing and excited about the future. 
Well, it is a delight, guys. It is a delight to do this. I mean, I look forward to it. I was looking forward to today. And, you know, we had so many different things we wanted to talk about. We had to d- take a take a vote. So yeah. uh, here we go. We're going to talk about uh, what it's like to be sleepless in Silicon Valley. This is from The Economist. And no, it is not a uh, an Onion article. It's from uh, those those dear people at The Economist. Um, uh, first... Close the blackout blinds in your bedroom, eat dinner at 4 p.m., and do not eat or drink anything after 6 p.m. Put on your blue light blocking glasses at 8 p.m., set your bedroom temperature to 67 degrees Fahrenheit, and your electric blanket to 69.8 degrees Fahrenheit. At 8.45 p.m., meditate for 5 to 10 minutes, switch on your deep wave sound machine, put on your aura sleep tracking ring. You are now finally ready for slumber. This is the sleep hygiene routine described in a recent blog post by Brian Johnson, chief executive of Kernel, a startup developing brain computer interfaces. He admits that his sleep routine has quote unquote decimated my social life and that his partner sleeps in a different room, but says all this trouble is worth it because it has boosted his level of quote deep sleep by as much as 157%. Uh, indeed, for tech tycoons, is it that seems. Is that, like, is that how many fish there were in the second miraculous catch? <laughs> it might have been 153. I think it was 153 because I, I remember it being a number that was divisible by three. Anyway, mm. continue, it's neither here nor there. But who's counting? Who's counting? Well, Silicon Valley is counting very, very precisely. For tech tycoons, it seems sleep is the new fitness. Those who want to monitor and improve their sleep have no shortage of gadgets to choose from. The market for sleep technology was worth $58 billion in 2014 and is expected to grow to $81 billion by 2020. The mania for sleep technology makes perfect sense for the tech industry. It fits with the industry's metrics-driven worldview. Applying similar techniques to sleep and other aspects of their personal lives, an approach known as the quantified self, seems like a logical step. As those in the startup world like to say, what's measured improves. And uh, just as a side note, what those in the Mockingbird world would say, what's measured uh, gets worse. Um, <laughs> uh, sleep tracking also the aligns back to the economist. The uh, sleep tracking also, or it, it improves self-consciousness. We can put it that way. Um, Yikes. Sleep tracking also aligns neatly with Silicon Valley's cult of productivity and the constant search for life hacks that may make entrepreneurs more effective, efficient, and successful. They also let people extend their quantified self-efforts into the one part of the day that was previously untouched, which is shut-eye. Relentlessly pr- pursuing productivity only while you are awake is for wimps. Never mind that a study published in 2015 by researchers at Mass General and Harvard found that sleep tracking devices could not accurately measure sleep and that claims about them uh, were long on hype and short on solid evidence. Ignore the fact that another study published in 2017, the University of Two Medical Schools in Chicago, (laughs) warned of the dangers, get this, of orthosomnia. Defined as a quote-unquote perfectionistic quest for the ideal sleep in order to optimize daytime function. Uh, As obsessive users of sleep tech devices self-diagnose sleep disturbances based on dodgy data or stay awake all night worrying that they are falling behind by not sleeping as efficiently as rivals. Uh, The enthusiasm for sleep tech also fits a larger pattern of using technology to fix problems that the industry itself has created. Is your smartphone too addictive? Well, here's an app to help you monitor and track your usage. Seen this way, the embrace of sleep tracking is an indictment of the whole culture. It tackles the symptoms of sleep deprivation, but not the disease. Um, 
Well, you too. How did how did you sleep last night? <laughs> Not well. I mean, I just started a new job, so I woke up in the middle of the night, unable to breathe because I'm worried I'm going to do things that are going to make the students in my ministry mad at me. So, mm-hmm. not well. <laughs> and that's well, pretty typical of most nights. Of sleep you're so right mild mannered, though, Sarah. I mean, you so you're such a wallflower. I'm not. I'm not worried about that at all. You're not given to controversy or you know or change too many things at one time. Not at all. Yeah. yeah no, circum- lately my sleep. My I was thinking like, what's my what's been my like sleep like sleep ritual lately because. And RJ actually says says this sometimes, like the moment that you get into that like thing where you're like, I'm going to have green juice every night and like, you know, I'm going to be very zen about this. Like it's like right when it's like falling apart. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so my sleep ritual lately has been and this is not this is not normal for me. Uh, I don't normally hit my knees in prayer but literally has been from the sheer exhaustion of the loud voice of self-loathing in my head um, to hit my knees and like put, put my arms on my bed and like lower my head for a few minutes. Um, so it's a little less noisy. And, uh, and then if that doesn't work, NyQuil. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just thought, I just, I just thought this article was just so completely absurd to anyone who has small children, like anyone yeah. who has ch- really maybe children at or all, children. but especially yeah. small children. Like give they really me get a, in the way of your productivity, oh uh, which they really do. Let me tell you, they are inefficient. Small children. <laughs> they maybe are there's a life hack for that. You know, where my two and a half year old can become just more more efficient. It's part called of my an life. iPad. That's the life hack. You hand them an iPad. <laughs> That's totally true. No, yeah, my my sleep pattern is um, desperately try to get the baby to sleep by about 9, 9.30, because have I said this before, how there's apparently in the state of Texas, it is mandated that every preschool has to provide like a two-hour nap time in the middle of the day. So our older two kids had both dropped their nap by the time they were this age, but our youngest is forced to take a nap, which means he's up until 9, 9 or 9.30. Then try to get like a half an hour to an hour with my wife or to myself before I totally pass out. Oftentimes, my older son will wake me up at about 3 a.m. to help him with a uh, project or paper he's trying to write. So I'll be up for an hour or two doing that. And then, yeah, wake up at 6.30 to make lunches and get kids to school and do it all over again. So there's my there's my mm. life hack. There's the Haven that sleep. That's, that's why I'm so effective and high energy all the time. Well, exactly. It, it I don't is, eat. I don't just sleep. The, Perfect. I just feel like based on what Dave's hair looks like right now, he didn't sleep well last night. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, ca- it's carefully disheveled. It's very curated. Dave curates his oh, follicles. I think it's it's a very like English professor. Dave, tell us how you slept last night. I slept okay. I have a CPAP machine these days, so I'm uh, I'm like I've, I've entered into late middle age way early. <laughs> so like, you look I'm like, like Darth one Vader of the guys. when you sleep. Someone the other day, I was talking at the sleep doctor and he was saying to me, because we've got some sleep guru here, and he was like, well, you know, it's like all these Vietnam vets, you know, they used to sort of bond about their tours in, in uh, you know, in the jungle and all the things that they'd seen. And now they get to bond over their CPAP machines and that culture. And I was like, oh, great. That makes me feel amazing. Thank you for, you know, equating me with men like literally 35 years older than me. So oh young, God. so young, fogey-ish, Dave I mean, this is a, uh, this is actually a, a taken, I mean, I, I wrote, a 
significant portion in the seculosity of leisure section about how uh, sleep in a kind of cult of productivity becomes almost the enemy or it becomes uh, w- something in which we're striving. It, 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 we're striving in our sleep and that sleep becomes something that's almost anxiety producing and rather than the ultimate you know, opposite of work, it becomes another thing to perfect. And this, I'm glad because orthosomnia, we, we all, we talked about orthorexia, which is the, you know, the emphasis on uh, perfect eating that uh, in perfectly sourced foods that ends up starving people, they stop eating entirely. But here that, that line, when it says, uh, you know, people stay awake all night worrying that they are falling behind by not sleeping as efficiently as rivals. If that's not a picture of what it feels like to be in a, uh, uh, you know, in a place in which productivity has become absolutely enshrined as the high, highest moral good, I don't know what what is. It's it's it reads like an Onion article, and you're right. There's no sense of like it is completely the self focus is just taking for granted. Like to be able to calibrate your own circumstances this degree, and it, and it does it. What does he say? It's decimated his social life. His uh, you know, his spouse is sleeping in another room. Yep. Um, they probably did a unimoon. <laughs> They probably did. I mean, easy to talk smack here, but I'm thinking like, I, at the same time, we went gotten a new mattress recently, and I fell down the rabbit hole of looking at mattress stuff to figure out what's going to oh, give me the the absolute mattress shopping is crazy. What's going to help so me? So expensive out. mattresses are so we, yeah. We pay for expensive. ours monthly. That's yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> for like years, like by the time we pay it off, we have to get another one. Like yeah, it's crazy expensive. It, but, it but, made me think of all this stuff that's coming out about like the Chinese surveillance state and how crazy it is, but like how we don't need a surveillance state because we'll just do it to ourselves. You know, mm. we'll just create these structures to control and monitor everything we do. It's the, the drive for control and mastery and it's just nuts. It's crazy. It's, it's so, I mean, Dave, I think what you're saying about like, it's, it's so isolating. It's so accidentally isolating. Like I, I think about how our eight-year-old comes in because he'll wake up in the middle of the night. He comes by naturally and is anxious about something and can't sleep. And I'm always like, I used to do that as a kid and my parents weren't the kind of parents that were like, you can get in bed with us. And, um, and so I remember like what that felt like and I don't want my kids to feel that way. Right. And so, but I also like don't want him in bed with us. So I've said to our son, look, if you're having a hard time sleeping, come get me. And I drag my pillow into his room and sleep in bed with him so he can go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. And like, do I wake up in the morning feeling amazing? No, I don't. And do I regret how little money we spent on his mattress? Yes, I do. <laughs> but um, but also, there's something really sweet about that, that like he knows that I'm willing to give up sleep so that he can go back to sleep. Like, so mm. I don't know. And no, it's just, so, it, this is so isolating to me, like that you would be this guarded around like sleep, sleep with your spouse. And I mean, I'm just like... And, I mean, we haven't even, and we don't have to, but the whole question of intimacy here mm. is like, where is that happening? We've already talked you know about I mean? that, haven't it's we? Inefficient. I mean, it's inefficient. Inefficient. That might lead, to chil- might lead to children, which are even Sex more inefficient. Sex is the least efficient yes. thing you could yes, do. absolutely. It's, uh, sorry, awesome. RJ. No, you, uh, we actually totally gave up. Our two and a half year old sleeps in bed with us every night, Aww. pretty much. And we have a little, but it, and we started doing that. Why did we do that? I was away for a week or something or... And Jamie was just like, forget it. I'm just going to have him in bed with me. But she's like, you know, if I have him in bed with me the next few days, he will never leave, mm. which has yeah. proven to be true. Yeah. Um, but it's so sweet. Like this morning yes. at 6, 6 a.m., I felt his little pudgy arm <laughs> reaching around my neck and snuggling up in back of me. And I was like, oh, you know. Mm. And then uh, 
he does have a little mattress in the corner where sometimes we we put him if uh, we feel like not having him in bed with us. But I will say that also coincided with a real improvement in his sweetness and his mm-hmm. attitude. And, oh, and maybe yeah. that was happenstance, but it was like as soon as he started sleeping in bed with us, he became a lot more pleasant person. Yeah. You know, so it feels... Uh, it feels worth it. It's, it's efficient, is what I'm saying. Ended so up for, so being from, from the seculosity of leisure straight into the seculosity of parenting. Thank you, RJ. I appreciate <laughs> yes. that. We have uh, uh, the family mattress. That's what we advocate here at Mockingbird. <laughs> California King, baby, all the way. <laughs> have a um oh gosh they have a uh i remember a bunch of years ago being at a, a theological conference or someone was came in to speak to the staff of the organization i was working in they talked about progressive sanctification and how the law was really gracious god's gracious gift to us to sort of help us improve and then um someone asked well what does this look like what does christian growth look like when you're asleep like what is do your dreams get more sanctified over the years and i mean honestly i think that the person almost was was intentionally uh poking at the bear of being like, when you're asleep is you cannot control by definition, even if you've controlled all these circumstances beforehand, what comes out in the middle of the night, what comes out in your sleep, these sometimes these violent dreams, these very sexual dreams, like the very, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, just fearful dreams. I don't know what it is. Like that is where, uh, I always feel it's a good barometer of where you're really at and, um, not and it's usually not uh, a great, uh, there's something's on your mind and something is, is coming out in those dreams. And the idea that somehow we could dictate our dreams is, seems to be so, uh, it's so funny. Like my regular dreams are like, well, some of them are just too dark to talk about, but regularly I have a dream where I'm just like randomly standing in some like landscape and it totally turns into one of those movies where like a giant wave is like coming up over me. Like interstellar. Yeah, like t- like I'm like it's a massive like the world is you know all basically falling apart and I'm like right there for like the wave to cut wash over me and kill everything and I wake up and I'm like, wow, like <laughs> I got a lot going on. <laughs> Basically, basically Noah's Ark for everyone who wasn't Noah. <laughs> exactly. That's my regular dream. And I'm never Perfect. on the Ark. I'm always like, wow, this didn't work out for me, you know? So. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, I, it was someone, I was talking to a guy, tra- uh, Trailer Lavorne the other day, and he was saying, you know, the, the gospel always is like, is what makes sense when we're in the places where willpower fails and uh, where willpower, at least where the limits of willpower are made known. And sleep is an area where like, if you're mm. really trying hard to sleep, you know that that's the least relaxing thing. Thing. Uh, yeah. And also, like the kind of dreams you have, and, and you talk to an insomniac, and they're very well acquainted with how out of control their life is. But let's let's go from something kind of uh, exhausting. <laughs> I feel like I, I, it's not a good pun, but I really feel like we could talk about lack of sleep like for a whole episode. But anyway, I know yeah. it feels. <laughs> <laughs> I do not have uh, strong. I, I do not have fond feelings for our two and a half year old in our bed. I I I, I really am. I bring down the law hard. You're out of here. Um, the uh, this past week, this past uh, Sunday was graduation weekend for many people in the world in in the country, and Morehouse College. This wonderful act of uh, this billionaire investor Robert Smith, the Morehouse College seniors um, at the historically black. Uh, um, college there got a surprise when billionaire investor Robert F. Smith announced during his commencement speech that he would pay off the student loan debt uh, for the entire graduating class. 
by aiding nearly 400 uh, students at an estimated value of $40 million. His donation is the single biggest gift in the school's 152-year history. President David Thomas called Smith's gesture a liberation gift. And uh, not surprisingly, the refrain, you are enough, is one of Smith's go-to and was the basis of his 2015 commencement speech at American University. So this really beautiful moment, and if you can find on Twitter the the, the video, he didn't tell anyone he was doing this, but there's a video of what how the students respond when they realize that he's for real. Um, but of course, the response is it has there's been no lack of criticism after the sort of viral, hey, this is so exciting. Um, Michelle Singletary in the Washington Post, actually, who writes about personal finance, she put a column out called Is This Fair to Families Who Saved? She writes, I wasn't there, but given my experience, I can imagine what some parents at the recent Morehouse College commencement in Atlanta might have been thinking when uh, they heard about the grant to pay off all the student loans for the 2019 graduates. Those not on the receiving end of this amazing gift might have contemplated even... For just a second, what about us? What do we get for doing the right thing and saving for our kids to go to college debt-free? The gift has resonated with me and not for completely positive reasons, a reader from Virginia wrote. Of course, I'm happy for the students and I'm very appreciative of a rich person who contributes from his sex success to others. However, but... my... <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just like, she's like, but, I'm really after them, but... Yeah, however, my immediate thought was, what about the classmates who struggled and sacrificed to pay the cost of their education without going into debt? There must be many feeling left out, unlucky, or even resentful. I feel conflicted without being smart enough to guarantee some better conclusion, but I think in his place, I would have the generous contribution given to permanent scholarship fund. Several other readers echo the same sentiment. There are others who racked up debt with no idea of how they could minimize it or how they would pay it off and are being rewarded for irresponsible financial behavior. I'm I'm just blown away by the gracious act of clearing someone's debt and the you know as we always talk about when it comes to sort of grace and atonement and these things the slate being wiped clean is such a beautiful metaphor and then also though you have a a really uh, workers in the vineyard type response of like well, what about you know, we, we, we've been here all day. What's, what, what on earth are you doing? That's unfair. Uh, how dare you reward irresponsible behavior? But you guys probably heard about this extremely powerful display. What do you think? So I have a really heavy thought about this. Um, our seminary, uh, the one my husband went to, Virginia, um, the one we give money to, um, they just made a big announcement that none of their students have to pay tuition. And while, I mean, there were a couple of people that made jokes about this, there wasn't who'd graduated from there recently, you know, who were like, Oh, well, I still have to pay my tuition. I, I think we actually may still be paying a small loan for my husband. This is different because it's black men. That's why this is different. And it's different because it's black men historically. And it's different because there's such a history of, systemic racism, there's the history of slavery. And I, you know, always say this, you know, I'm a child of Mississippi. My grandmother was raised by her grandmother, which meant she knew slaves, you know, she knew black folks who were slaves. You know, we don't like to talk at Mockingbird a lot about like fair and not fair and these things. But I mean, when you talk about the way that black men have been treated historically in this country and the way that they're treated now, like it's not fair. And so, while I think this is an incredibly beautiful and gracious thing that this guy has done, and I don't agree with any of these critiques, I think we have them. 
because there is this weird calling for fairness that's not been met in other ways, right? Like that we're not actually dealing with racism or we're not actually dealing with rage and we're not dealing with any of these things appropriately. So it comes out. So we have this beautiful, amazing, gracious gesture this man makes at Morehouse. And this is where people are trying to process like racism as a whole, right? Mm. Which doesn't work. Mm. So anyway, those are my thoughts, Arj. Hmm. It's funny. Thoughts similar to that crossed my mind. Um, I just reached. Uh, I just watched. Sorry, um, the James Bald movie, the documentary about James Baldwin called uh, "I'm Not Your Negro," which came out like a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something at the very beginning of the CNN article where uh, the man who made this gift talked about his family having, you know, been. He was like, "I'm half of eight generations of my family. Basically, like we've been here a while." Um, and James Baldwin in this movie, this is from the 1960s, talks about how RFK, you know, JFK's brother, at some point in the 60s, had made a comment about, you know, how race relations were getting so much better and that he could imagine, you know, in 30 or 40 years, it might even be possible that there would be a black president. And James Baldwin's um, reaction was like, that's re- like how absurd that was, because he he's like, James Baldwin said, you know, my ancestors have been here for three centuries and RFKs just got here like yesterday. Mm. And you're going to tell me and my people who have been here so much longer than you that someday maybe we can dream about being in charge. Um, mm. And just the historicity of black people in America. The other thought was, as someone who is looking at colleges for my oldest son will be applying next year, that whole thing about saving Like, it has to go out the window because his school, his four years, unless he goes to a state school, and even then if he goes to a state school, but if he goes to a private school, it's going to be like $300,000. Yeah. Like, it's it's just so, it is so beyond, the cost is so beyond that if you actually can afford to save for, and actually just look at what Howard's tuition is, Howard's still like 50 grand, you know, so like... If you can afford to save, then that kind of, I hate to say, you were rich to start, maybe, mm-hmm. if you can afford to put away two or $300,000 for a kid for for college. So, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it starts to get theological, where it's like the debt is so great that mm-hmm. you have no hope of paying it yourself ever, unless someone comes in and pays the debt for you. Either on the front end or the back end, you know our hope is is scholarships. You know, uh, that's that's that. You know, the financial picture will be part of the picture for his uh, for where he ends up uh, for college. But um, anyway, it was just it was a beautiful picture of forgiveness, and one hopes that mercy will actually beget mercy and forgiveness beget forgiveness in the way that Jesus talks about. And um, but for people to be, I don't know jealous or something because like like i said i mean maybe you sold your house or something and that's how you paid for your kid to get through school but unless you made that level of sacrifice um i don't know it's just it's, a, it's an impossible situation the other thing that reminds me a little bit of is the woman who anoints jesus's feet at bethany with the perfume yeah in this incredibly expensive lavish and the immediate reaction of the disciples yes. is like is is uh it could have been sold and the wages yes. could have been given to the poor and jesus being like you know, the poor you always have with you, right. but, but don't, you know, this woman's done a beautiful thing for me and this story will be told for generations, which it has been, but this, this whole sense of, and this goes back actually to the first conversation, 
making sure that even in our philanthropy, it's as efficient and well thought through totally. and metric metrics based. Yes. And you know, I remember maximize a friend, maximize yeah, a friend a friend of Here's mine the better who had, way. a friend of mine who had wealthy Christian in laws who were very generous, but he did say sometimes he felt like they were so responsible with their giving that it took the joy out of it. Mm. And let's face it, joyful giving, look what Spufford said, right? What Spufford says in his Yeshua chapter in um, Unapologetic, uh, Jesus um, doesn't want your uh, careful virtue. He wants your reckless generosity, Mm -hmm. reckless generosity. Mm -hmm. And this is what, this is what this looks like, right? That this was, I think something born out of uh, joy and love and you can criticize it all you want, but if, if to the degree that the action is motive is integrated with the motivation, it is a godly, Jesus-like act. And Jesus got criticized for doing the exact same sorts of things and for receiving the exact same sorts of things. But it's not about efficiency or control. It's about love and freedom. That's, and that's, that's what be- I, I mean, that when you remember, RJ, you're the one when we were talking about the college admission scandal, you were saying, or what do you, what what are, are people so upset that these kids are getting into college because someone else has completely made it possible, n- not according to any merit of their own. In fact, they're shown to be wanting. And here you have, I mean, it's slightly different because there's no like law breaking involved, but you have uh, someone. Um, they're accounted righteous or they're, they're absolved. They're completely absolved of debt uh, on account of someone else, someone else paying that cost. And it's, it's, it's sort of undeniably powerful. I'm also, and people are still mad about it. I mean, that's, what's interesting is it's not the same thing at all, but people are having the same response to it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, totally. Like it's still like, they don't, they don't deserve this. They didn't work hard enough. What about people who work I mean, harder? If, like if I had graduated, if I graduated last year and had gracious, grace is like never Okay, it's fascinating. And people are sort of like, well, what do we wish? We wish he'd never done it in the first place, and that like, uh, and that instead he would. It, um, it's still an inspiring thing, and it is. Yeah, it's incredible. I also think that grace, to the extent that we experience it in to, in today's world and on this earth, it, it's surprising. It's always surprising. And what is yes. what is sort of so cool about watching the video and hearing about this is that it was a surprise to everyone there. And the dawning realization, people being like, this is the most generous thing I've ever witnessed in my life. And this is like... I. It, the, the, this is too good to be true. This is um, uh, heaven sent. This is unbelievably, you just watch people sort of fall apart. And the, the effect that that has when it's not contrived and it's not, and it's completely by surprise rather than kind of, as you say, RJ, very carefully planned and regimented as though, I'll, you know, I'll, we'll still take your gifts, uh, you know, $5 a month. <laughs> but, um, right. you, you know, you know what I mean? Um yeah, it reminds me of that article that we talked about, about the sort of the idea of charity being a Judeo-Christian thing historically. Um, and that, um, I guess I told this story on the podcast, but I, I keep thinking of it because when you talk about um, giving being, you know, or grace being a surprise, like that's key in grace. I keep thinking about that thing that happened at the Dawson, you know, big meeting that our Dan are at and all the priests are at and that priest got to the podium and he's like giving the history of his little church in Waco. And I'm like, this is, what are we doing? Are we all going to give our church histories? Oh my God, this is going to be a terrible meeting. And then, and then he's like, he talks about how this one church gave a lot of money for his church to get started. And then he's like, and recently our church has come into this, it was a massive bequest and they gave 
10% of it, which was over $200,000. This little church that could have consolidated the money and built a bigger property and done all these, you know, power things. He stood at the podium and said, and we're going to give $200,000 to this like church plant that's just started. And it's just like, and everybody starts weeping. It's like this, it just doesn't make sense. Grace never makes sense. Mm. That's what pisses everybody off. Well, let's let's talk about who it does make sense to. And that's, we're going to end with this unbelievable article mm. called Back Row America. It is a... Um, we published uh, parts of it on the website, and this is actually First Things got the rights to publish this here, but uh, Chris Arnade is a photographer and a former businessman who, um, wonderful, uh, we, he'd come across our radar a while ago, and so we put some of this uh, on our website, and he was fortunate, uh, we were fortunate enough to receive an advanced copy of this book. The book is called Dignity, and uh, the subtitle is Seeking Respect in Back Row America. And uh, he writes about as a, he was a guy who worked at City. Bank, and um, before the financial crisis, sort of, he I, it, apparently he lost his job or walked away. And he talks about what he's been doing since then, which is really delving into the uh, the really the poorest in forgotten sections of American life. He's he, uh, one of the first chapters is titled uh, "If You Want to Get to Know America, Go to McDonald's." Um, he talks about himself. He says, our isolation on Wall Street from the bulk of the country left us with a narrow view of the world. We valued what we could measure. And that meant material wealth. Things that couldn't be measured, community, dignity, faith, happiness, were largely ignored because they were hard to see. We had compassion for those who got left behind, but thought that our job was to provide them with an opportunity, no matter how small, to get where we were. It didn't occur to us that what we valued wasn't what everyone else wanted. If anything, we saw religion as an old, irrational thing that limited and repressed people, and often outright oppressed them. When I first went to the Bronx, I expected that the people there, those most affected by the coldness and ruthlessness of the world, would share my atheism. Instead, I found a strong belief in the supernatural and a faith that manifested in many ways, mostly as a belief in the Bible. Everyone I met there who was living homeless or battling addiction held a deep faith. For many back row Americans, the only places that regularly treat them like humans are churches. The churches are everywhere. Small churches that have come in and taken over a space and light it up on Sundays and Wednesdays. They walk inside the church and immediately they meet people who get them. The preachers and the congregants inside may preach to them, even judge their past decisions, but they don't look down on them. They have walked the walk and know the shit they are going through, not from a book, not from a movie, not from an article, not from a study, but from their own lives or the lives of their friends. They look like them and they get them. There are rules to follow if you join, but they don't require having your paperwork in order or having a proper ID. They don't require getting grilled about this or that. They say, enter as you are, letting forgiveness wash away a past that many want gone. The churches understand the streets, understand everyone is a sinner and everyone fails. The rest of the world, the courts, the hospitals, the rehab clinics, the welfare office, police stations, and even some of the nonprofits and schools, especially the universities that won't let you on campus without police being called, doesn't understand that. That cold, secular world of, well in, of the well-intentioned is a distant and judgmental thing. Like most in the front row, I am used to thinking we have all the answers. On Wall Street, there were few problems we couldn't solve with enough smarts, energy, audacity, or money. We even managed to push death into the distance. With a great job and a great apartment in a great neighborhood, it is easy to feel we have nothing for which we need to be absolved. 
The fundamental fallibility of humans seems outdated. Distance. It's not hard to imagine that you have everything under control. On the streets, few can delude, can delude themselves into thinking they have it under control. You cannot ignore death there, and you cannot ignore human fallibility. It is easier to see that everyone is a sinner, everyone is fallible, and everyone is mortal. It is easier to see that there are things just too deep, too important, or too great for us to know. It is far easier to recognize that one must come to peace with the idea that we don't and never will have this under control. It is far easier to see religion not just as useful, but as true. When I wrote, uh, put that on the website, one of the things that I said was that it's so such a relief to um, to post something and a joy that is just so incredibly positive about what the church can be and clearly is for a lot of people that maybe don't have blogs and internet accounts and uh, magazines to write their thoughts and opinions in. Uh, this is a treasure of a book. And it does link, as we've seen here, that it makes clear that what would be, someone says it's a, there's some fireworks in the, the explosiveness in the idea that atheism is linked to privilege and that there's... Uh, but um, that's uh, not someone people think anyone wants to talk about, but that is clearly what he is talking about. And he's not me talking about it. He's, he's a, a guy who spent, I think, five years living in these communities. Um, but that's enough for me. I mean, Sarah, RJ, uh, I thought of you guys actually when I read this. I was like, I can't wait for them to, to read this article. It makes me think a lot about small churches, about really small churches and how... Um, it is these small churches that that actually do welcome these people in. And, and what's interesting to me is part of the reason they welcome those people in is because those small churches know how desperate they are. And they, they, um, they know they need people there. And all of the stuff that bigger churches, and I live in Houston, which is a city of bigger churches, frankly, um, sort of are like, well, you know, there's a certain church that certain people go to, and this is not that church, you know, like we literally have a homeless congregation in Houston, like we have a place for those people, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but when I think about like little churches, like in the Mississippi Delta, or little churches, even in Manhattan, where, um, where these people wander in, and there's um, that that church there's something also about the desperation of these small churches that's able to meet them where they are i mean i kind of feel like i'm rambling but i do think that there's something to that um and i'm also like guess what assholes like you can't measure grace like when people are this desperate in their lives like they're beyond the metrics like they're sleeping on the streets like they're not worried about how well they're gonna you know how many hours of sleep they're gonna get they're just Saving hoping to college wait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're not worried about that stuff like they 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 don't have any metrics anymore it's just at this point it's like everything that they're given and not judged on is grace. And I think that there's a way that these churches are able to meet them there. Um, that's pretty miraculous. And, and I just, I mean, people always shit on small churches to be frank with you. And like, there's virtue in those places. There's incredible, I, you know, nobody talks about this better than Chad Bird, mm. frankly, mm. but there's, there's something about, um, the ministry that happens in those places that we just we just dismiss and and we dismiss it because we dismiss these people who show up at these churches. You know, when I was a high schooler and and also in college, you would hear uh, the the very 
what I would call today like a very tired uh, trope about religion and saying that it's a crutch for uh, poor people or for needy people. And mm-hmm. the older I get, the realize I realize that we're, we're the ones with all the crutches. We're the the, we're the, the the affluent are the ones that have buffered themselves from their need. They've buffered themselves from death. They've gotten a, drawn a huge distance between themselves and other people. In fact, as we get lonelier and we, as I think David Brooks says that, you know, as soon as we get money, we buy our own loneliness we, because we, we get larger and larger houses further and further away from each people. And when he says, in fact, religion is actually the, the recourse of the people who have lost their crutches and are having to confront the cold reality of actual life. And when Arnaid says that they cannot pretend that people aren't sinners, they can't pretend that human beings aren't deeply fallible, and they can't pretend that everyone's going to die. I mean, that's those are the places where the gospel speaks the loudest. And so, instead of saying uh, religion is for people who, if they, who need a crutch, A, Oh, but, oh, by the way, all of us need crutches. Like right. well, cr- yes. crutches sound We're great to me. I I would like to have a full body cast. But the I'd like a lark, please. I just want to scoot. Can I just my get an epidural? <laughs> all the time. <laughs> uh, but they—that's a good one. They—they they, but they. You know, that's this. What we're really talking about here, and I think it's borne out. Uh, I've, I was talking to someone the other day who stopped going to a you know. A, a church in our denomination in order to go to a fully a church on the other side of the tracks, like a non-denominational yeah. track that's he, where he's one of the only white people in attendance. And a lot of people don't speak English. And he said that, you know, they're actually very, very dialed into reality. <laughs> they're like much more dialed into reality in a certain sense than those who are living online and those who are uh, ha- never have to see their parents because they're in a, they're in a old people's home or never have yep. to, de- never have to go to the DMV because they have someone to do it for them. I mean, yeah. Anyway, it's it's. I keep thinking about when I was in chaplaincy and like when we would, people would code. You know, I'd have to show up, and I was always relieved when it wasn't like a waspy family because the black folks would cry and process and touch the body and like be with them. Like all the stuff that I had to tell the white waspy people to do, they knew to do and they just did it, right? And part of that comes from privilege because they've had more generations of people dying at home than we have, frankly. Um, But then I also liked the Jewish families because (laughs) they would always send someone to get food. (laughs) And when someone died, there would be this like weird feast that would happen in the room where they're like, people are passing me hummus. And they're like, are you hungry? Like, are you, you know, and, but there was like a processing happening there too. And it always, you know, the, the, the younger the white people were in the room, the more fearful I was for them as to how they were going to handle this because they had been so buffered by, um, not, I don't know, man. I mean, this is like so legalistic, but maybe not getting, being able to crawl into their mama's bed, you know, like not there, you know, she, her mama had one of them sleep rings, you know, and she wasn't going to let the baby in bed with Gosh, her. How is, how is everything we're talking about today coming full circle? I'm, I'm very, I know, but I mean, it's like, it's, you know, because they, they aren't, um, I don't know. I just, this stuff with metrics is it. Yeah. It just seems to talk to everything today. Cause it's like the more, the more efficiently you've run your life, the more successful you've been in so many ways, the more isolated you've made yourself as you head to death, right? I mean, that's just... Just the nature of the beast. It reminds me, I've been slowly making my way through The Sopranos. I'm in season four right now. And there's a moment at which a Russian woman says to Tony how Americans are the only people on the face of the earth who actually expect to be happy. 
and mm. they have everything and they're totally miserable. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's like, there's something, there's something to that. And, and the more you have, the more happy you're supposed to be. And it's a whole David Foster Wallace, you know, cruise thing. It's not working people. It's just not working. It's like, it doesn't matter how much pampering you do. You can't escape cancer, anxiety, death, divorce, you know, addiction, like you, you just can't do this, it. Um, so what, so what you do is you just, you, you, shove it to the side, you know, every, every wealthy family has some daughter or son that lives in Alaska that no one talks about, you know? Um, so you shove it to the side, but it's still, it, it you know, it, it doesn't change the reality. It the is situation. such a, it's I'm such sorry. a baseline thing. Cause, uh, I was just in Nashville over the weekend, which is kind of becoming a bit of a burned over district. There's so many churches and I just associate with a lot of, of this sort of deconversion stuff that I read about everywhere. And um, here you have, you have basically, Arnaid's article is a mammoth rejoinder to all that because the, the difference between your life all going well and then one bad thing happening and you concluding that God isn't real or God doesn't love you versus your whole life being a veil of tears and one good thing happening and you saying, oh my word, God is real. That's a big, big difference. And the fact that we cannot call out, <laughs> to use that dreadful uh, phrase, uh, the privilege here is, um, it, it, it speaks to me as someone who expects my life to go, you know, who's imbibed this stuff with mother's milk. Uh, I may not have slept in the bed, but, you know, that that we um, we just expect Don't to be happy. Me. Don't judge me, We expect me, Dave. to be happy <laughs> and that, that that is, and that we've, that's totally bound up with how we view God versus these wonderful, and probably also sinners, you know, who are complicit in their own misery, the people that Arnaid talks about. And you, you read that he actually, in the book, there's tons of stories of these people. That's why the book is so good. Um, they're not innocent. He doesn't glamorize the poor. Uh, right. But he does say that they are somehow in deeper touch with what's really going on in life. And I, I think that that's an enormous uh, encouragement to me, and I hope it's encouragement to all of us. Um, any parting thoughts? Um, I told myself I wasn't going to talk about season two of Fleabag, but <laughs> everyone has to watch it because her character is so wounded. I mean, you don't even really have to watch the first season. Her character is so wounded. She's super dysfunctional. She has sex with everyone. But then you see her interact with your family and it, her family, and it makes so much sense because she's really the one that has to process the pain for the family, that has to process the sorrow. And she just she just buffers it. And she, when she meets this Roman Catholic priest, I mean, it's the, the, there's this beautiful moment where she's like told him she doesn't believe in God, but she's shown up for church. And he asks her if she wants to have some tea and they're sitting at a table together and he changes his mind pretty anxiously and decides they'll drink warm canned gin and tonics, which is like the grossest, most Anglican thing I've ever heard of. But anyway, they're sitting there drinking them. She has sniffed a Bible, like picked it up and smelled the inside of it. He's caught her. And she says something about not believing in God. And there's a painting of God on the wall and it falls and hits the floor and then this priest leans in and he says, I love it when he does that. <laughs> and like, there's just this, there's this beautiful, um, painful thing about like all the things this character has used that we all have as privileged people to buffer ourselves with. And, um, and, and, and instead, you know, it's that, that dichotomy of like living a life you were saying where, you know, everything's good and then something bad happens when we lose our faith in God versus like, you know, the portrait falls from the wall and you say, I love it when he does that. It's just different. So anyway. That's beautiful. RJ? 
that reminds me also of what um, is it Mary Carr in Lit, who she's an atheist and she's going through rehab, and her sponsor is like, "You need to start praying. You need to start praying." And Mary Carr is like, "I will never, pray. I will never get on my knees and pray ever." And then she's in rehab, going again, going through detox in the bathroom kneeling before the toilet, just vomiting. And she sort of starts to actually pray out of desperation and suddenly realizes that she's on her knees praying exactly in the way she never said she would. Um, But that's where she meets God, Mm. you know, in the midst of her uh, desperation and um, rehab experience. So that's, as as John's all says, God's office is at the end of your rope. <laughs> uh, which is just the best thing ever, well, and it's true. Um, guys, thanks for thanks for talking today. Lots lots to process. I I think I want to go take a nap. Yeah, me too. Make it efficient. All right, <laughs> make it count. Make it count. <laughs> yeah, make it count. All right, yeah. bye, guys. Bye. All right, bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.